In his controversial text, Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved, Hans von Balthasar argues that since it is impossible to know who, if anyone, is damned, oughtn't we reserve the hope that all are saved in fact? Though von Balthasar grounds his viewpoint in Christian charity, a similar, though secular, optimism dominated much of modernity, from Rousseau to Marx. Freud's damning portrayal of human nature, Darwin's reappraisal of human origins, and two world wars may have shattered the received optimism in many respects, but this optimism stubbornly persists in our modern culture. Just look at the Facebook posts in response to the death of a loved one. He's in a better place. She is smiling down on you from heaven. He is united with his dear wife in the presence of the angels. Okay, that was a grandpa. Everyone, we assume, is saved. In response to the media treatment surrounding the death of Hugh Hefner, Dr. Pecknold at CUA jokingly tweeted, quote, student studying von Balthasar takes a break to read Dalvit's Hugh Hefner Oban. Slowly slides, dare we hope, back onto the shelf, end quote. This was tweeted on September 30th. How much more was this sentiment felt on the following day, the day of the Vegas massacre? In our decidedly post-20th century context, for what shall we hope? The question of the extent of God's salvation and the grace necessary for it has been a central question of Christian doctrine from St. Augustine through St. Thomas and onward. It framed some of the key debates of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century and remains focal to some of the widespread secular animosity towards Catholicism today. But how are we to understand grace specifically? What is it? Is it like a Christmas present, something gratuitous, yet pretty well expected? Or like a pension plan, to which we make periodic deposits by good works, so that there will be enough grace there when we need it? Or is it like winning the lottery, the result of random luck, completely out of our control? What is grace, and to whom is it bestowed? Are there conditions? Can we be certain that we have received it? How do we know we are in God's favor? We cannot answer all of these questions here, or even in this lifetime, but we can come to some limited understanding this evening. For this, let us consider the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. Jesus came to a city of Samaria. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was with his journey, sat down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, and his sons and his cattle? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. And a few verses later she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. What is happening in this story? Jesus was leaving Judea, going to Galilee, and passed through Samaria. It was about the sixth hour, or noon. 
St. Thomas, drawing on the Church Fathers, notes that the sixth hour, since it is the time when the sun is at its highest, spiritually denotes the highest point of natural love, since the only thing left is decline. Thomas speaks here of natural love. This is contrasted with supernatural love, which will result from redemption in Christ. In this passage, the Samaritan woman who comes to draw water signifies the church of the Gentiles, who are not yet justified. She is mired in idolatry. This is, after all, why the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. They worship the God of Israel, along with idols, and in deference to these other gods, tried to keep the temple from being built. She was mired in idolatry, but destined for justification. Christ asks of her, give me a drink. Spiritually, Christ thirsts for the salvation of all on account of his love. It is for this reason he cries out on the cross, I thirst. But Christ immediately reverses things. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you perhaps would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. And this brings us to our topic for today. For as St. Thomas tells it, water signifies the grace of the Holy Spirit. Now water in the scriptural economy is of two kinds, non-living and living. Non-living water is not connected to its source. We find this water collected from the rain into ponds or cisterns. But living water is connected with its source and flows from it. The grace of the Holy Spirit is called living water because grace is given to us in such a way that the source of the grace is also given, that is, the Holy Spirit. Which is why we read in Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What does this mean that grace, given also with its source, finds its home in the hearts of men? Jesus says in the Gospel of John, if any man loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and abide in him. In the word abide, we see very clearly the true character of God's love for us. It is intimate. God does not remain distant from us. His love is immediate. God draws so near to us that he makes his dwelling within the human heart. He abides with us. He, as St. John of the Cross writes, settles behind our very breath. For this reason, we can say that grace gives the soul a kind of second nature. Nature is the essence of a thing, making it to be what it is. Grace makes us to be a partaker of the divine nature. It divinizes us. It elevates our nature and makes it supernatural. Contrast this with the Protestant view. For Luther and Calvin, the grace soul is simul juster et peccator, simultaneously justified yet sinful. Grace cannot fully penetrate the soul in this view. It instead acts as a kind of cloak giving a sort of angelic covering to our rotten core. Luther famously said that, quote, those whom we call holy are made holy by an alien holiness, end quote, meaning that human nature is totally corrupt, and so God must save us extrinsically from the outside through what Calvinists call imputed righteousness. For historical Protestantism, God finds us so fundamentally loathsome that he will only approach us by masking his eye basking from his eye our true depraved condition. The Catholic view, however, sees the grace of God as fully penetrating the human soul, redeeming it in such a way that we are fundamentally different because grace makes us proportionate to a supernatural end. What are some of 
the consequences of this vision of grace presented to us in the gospel story of the woman at the well. First, all graces flow from the Holy Spirit. Thus, it is, if the soul is not united with its source, it is not living, but dead. Second, in the case of spiritual adults, living water is obtained by desiring it, that is, by asking for it. Hence, Jesus says, perhaps you would have asked me. For this reason, we say that justification proceeds by a free act of the will by which we detest sin and desire grace. Consider in this regard the baptismal rite, which includes both of these elements. And third, two things lead to this desire for grace. A knowledge of the good to be desired, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, and a knowledge of the giver, Jesus continues, and who it is that says to you. Summarizing this, grace requires that one, we know what it is, two, we know who can give it, three, we ask for it. And this is accomplished in the Samaritan woman who asks for what she knows is a good to be desired, Lord, give me this water, and who knows who can give it. I perceive that you are a prophet. But what about those who either do not know the good that is to be desired, or who do not know who can give it, or who do not ask for it, those outside of the Christian economy? Pope Pius, IX, excuse me, Pope Pius IX addresses just this concern when he writes, quote, they who labor in invincible ignorance of our most holy religion and who, zealously keeping the natural law and its precepts engraved in the heart of all by God and being ready to obey God, live an honest and upright life, can by the operating power of divine light and grace attain eternal life. Since God who clearly beholds, searches, and knows the minds, souls, thoughts, and habits of all men, because of his great goodness and mercy, will by no means suffer anyone to be punished with eternal torment who has not the guilt of deliberate sin. If I were grading his paper, that's obviously a run-on sentence. <laughs> but it's rich. <laughs> and in more recent times, the Second Vatican Council proclaimed, those also can attain to salvation who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, yet sincerely seek God, and moved by grace, strive by their deeds to do his will, as it is known to them through the dictates of conscience. Nor does divine providence deny the helps necessary for salvation to those who, without blame on their part, have not yet arrived at an explicit knowledge of God and with his grace strive to live a good life. End quote. What we can glean from these brief quotations is that the church teaches that God offers saving grace to all without exception though all do not accept it. By grace, God moves persons outside the church to come to know him more fully. Such grace is always mediated through Christ, whose passion, death, and resurrection merited all graces, and through his church. Furthermore, there is a distinction between those who are invincibly ignorant, not culpable, and those who are invincibly ignorant, culpable, with respect to the knowledge about Christ. For those who are invincibly ignorant, the offer of grace, once accepted, results in a life of grace that is confirmed by a life lived according to the natural law. This is why the church prays thus in her Good Friday petitions. Quote, let us pray for those who do not believe in Christ, that, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, they too may enter on the way of salvation. Almighty ever-living God, grant to those who do not confess Christ that by walking before you with a sincere heart they may find the truth. 
For atheists, the church prays, let us pray also for those who do not acknowledge God, that following what is right in sincerity of heart, they may find the way to God himself. Almighty ever-living God, who created all people, to seek you always by desiring you and by finding you come to rest, grant we pray that despite every harmful obstacle, all may recognize the signs of your fatherly love and the witness of the good works done by those who believe in you, and so in gladness confess you, the one true God and Father of our human race. Now there is an ancient axiom, lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of praying is the law of believing. As we pray, so we believe. These de prayers demonstrate the great hope of the church, which is also the will of her savior, that all may be saved. At the same time, both of these prayers are a bit reserved. The church does not pray for the happy future convergence of the many paths to God. In other words, these are not prayers for pluralism. Nor does the church pray that all may be somehow united in the categorical imperative as the highest and final expression towards which all religions tend. No, the church is both hopeful but sober in these intercessions. In the first petition, the church prays for grace to operate in the souls of non-Christians, for the Holy Spirit to enlighten them. It is particularly interesting that the church prays that non-Christians find the truth through a sincere heart, and not necessarily through the, through the continued practice of their religion. In the petition for atheists, the church points to the fact that we have been created to seek God. We have a natural desire for God that provides the foundation, though not the sure possession, for finding God. Now the question presents itself. Why should we concern ourselves with people in other religious traditions or who have no religious tradition at all? The answer is a matter of Christian charity. On the one hand, we who believe know that union with the triune God upon which the Christian life hinges is a good too great not to be shared with others. Even if our Lord had never given his followers the mandate to go out to all the world and share the good news, we would have done so anyway simply because it is of the nature of the good to be shared. As St. Clement of Alexandria puts it, quote, wisdom is a communicative and philanthropic thing, end quote. On the other hand, the great Christian mystery is that human beings have been endowed with free will, a freedom that permits us to choose eternal happiness or to reject it and to spend an eternity separated from God. This separation we call hell. So in a very real sense, everything is at stake in questions of salvation. While these considerations have been true as long as there has been a church, they are more concretely exigent for us today because of the pluralistic world in which we live. Adherents of other religious traditions, agnostics and atheists, are no longer an abstraction for most of us, but rather they are our neighbors, our friends, and our family members. For what may we hope concerning these? Christianity is a religion that has the audacity to profess that the salvation of all, our one hope, hinges upon a single man, the God-man Jesus Christ. Theologians call this the scandal of particularity. And it is scandalous indeed. As St. Paul puts it, it is a stumbling block to the Jews and a scandal to the Greeks. To the Jews of Paul's day, it was a stumbling block that the Messiah, the one blessed and anointed by God, could die in ignominy and shame the accursed death of crucifixion. For the Greeks, the Gentiles, it was a scandal that God, 
absolute being itself could become. It could become anything, but precisely could become flesh, dwell amongst us, and die for us. But the universal mediation of Christ is no less a scandal to the modern mind. Consider Gertrude Lessing as an example. He argued that revelation, even if it were to occur, would not be historically accessible. In his morality play on the theme of religious tolerance, Nathan Der Weisse, his titular character asks, quote, are not all religions built alike on history, traditional or written? History must be received on trust, is it not so? End quote. Kierkegaard raises this difficulty in his gloss on Lessing, which he places as a subtitle to his work, Philosophical Fragments. He asks, quote, can a historical point of departure be given for an eternal consciousness? How can such a point of departure be of more than historical interest? Can an eternal happiness be built on historical knowledge? End quote. From these very brief allusions, we can see that even in modernity, this belief that one man and one historical moment in history holds the key to the eternal happiness of all is scandalous. And yet, this is the fundamental Christian belief. Christ is man's only hope. What then can we hope for non-believers concretely? Attempts to answer this question typically fall within two camps, broadly construed, indifferentism and exclusivism. Indifferentism can be further subdivided into absolute indifferentism and mere inclusivism. Absolute indifferentism presumes that all religious traditions have equal value and are equally capable paths to salvation. This is the many roads philosophy popularized by college bumper stickers. Coexist. The underlying presupposition to this position is Hegelian. Religion is an immaterial, spiritual reality that comes to expression in all of the world's religions. But fundamentally, so the theory goes, the core of each religion is the same. In some sense, all religions mean the same thing, whether their adherents realize it or not. Speaking about this sort of indifferentism, Cardinal Ratzinger notes, quote, there is thus a kind of worldwide religious citizenship, which finds any change of religious nationality undesirable, except just in certain exemplary instances, end quote. In other words, proselytism would be seen to be arrogant under this viewpoint. It will also be seen to be irrelevant, as many indifferentists believe that historical religions are oriented towards a final convergence at a future point anyway. This was the view of the infamous 12th century monk Joachim of Fiori, who held that the dogmatic divisions during the so-called Age of Christ would give away to a universal gospel in the Age of the Spirit in which dogma would be transcended. The incipient Hegelianism that grounds the contemporary version of indifferentism sees in all religions a common underlying spirit and in all religious language, concepts, and dogma a universal meaning trapped in contingent doctrinal language. With respect to doctrine, then, indifferences hold that no dogmatic language is permanent. It is instead a mutable placeholder for immutable truths, which are grounded in common human experience, experience which itself changes with the vicissitudes of history. In other words, experience determines religious truth. There must be a correspondence between dogma and life for it to be true. So it is not that one's life needs to be raised to the level of truth, 
but rather that truth must get its stamp of approval from experience or be rendered irrelevant. Religious truth, therefore, is a matter of subjective feeling and not objective judgment. The consequence is that there is no stable truth. The underlying root of this view of religion is a kind of agnosticism. Christianity is simply the best version of the universal human aspiration to objectify one's interior religious sentiments in religion. In other words, there is no supernatural at all, i.e. Feuerbach. This viewpoint, when it enters the church, takes the form of naturalism. Naturalism, therefore, ends by denying the supernatural order altogether or our access to it. There are no miracles, no grace. Religion is reduced to what Schleiermacher called gefühl, mere religious feeling or sentiment. Influenced by these thinkers, Catholic naturalists argue that Catholic dogma, doctrine, and liturgy are not essential to salvation. They are merely ancillary elements that are subordinate to the higher and more interior common religious experience. This position is really a sort of Pelagianism. We can save ourselves. Inclusivism is a subset of indifferentism, indifferentism light. This viewpoint holds that though religions are not each reducible to the others, there is a common religious experience, a true life of the spirit, of grace that underlies human nature as such at all times, and this is accessible to all. This view forms the underlying basis for Karl Rahner's famous anonymous Christianity thesis. Rahner argues that all religions have within them implicit Christian elements and are in fact moving towards Christianity as their final end. Grace, Rahner postulates, comes to us as a supernatural existential, as an offer of grace always already coextensive with human nature as such. In other words, man has a natural desire for God as a supernatural end that cannot easily be frustrated. The upshot of Rahner's view is that one can be saved as an adherent of non-Christian religions, not just through, but by these religions. In other words, non-Christian religions themselves are efficacious. They affect one's salvation. I do have some definitions for you on that handout that's uh, around. Now, Rahner always sees this extra-Christian salvation as mediated only in and through Christ, but he argues that Christ uses the world's religions as an efficacious means of saving people. Exclusivism, for its part, so we looked at several alternatives, now exclusivism, sees no positive possibilities in religious traditions outside of Christianity and presumes that people outside the church cannot be saved except through explicit membership in the visible church. This position includes Protestantism in its historical forms, at least, Jansenism, and the Bionists, all of whom would take human nature to be so wholly corrupted by original sin that it is rendered utterly incapable of natural virtue. All of the acts of the unbaptized are sins, consequently. What appears to be virtue in the unbaptized is really vice because there are no goods outside of election. The Catholic response, which stands in contradistinction to exclusivism and indifferentism, is that there is natural virtue, that human nature is wounded but not completely corrupted by original sin, that there is a natural desire for God, and that there can be a natural, though inefficacious, knowledge and love of God. Furthermore, the church teaches that those outside the church are offered actual graces through which they may ready themselves 
for the possible reception of sanctifying grace. The unbaptized can receive the grace necessary to unite themselves to God and to be saved. So now, let us spend the rest of our time investigating the church's teaching from a specifically Thomistic lens. We can summarize the Thomistic view thus. God has a universal salvific will. He desires all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. And for this, he provides sufficient grace for each and every person, though this does not imply that each person is given the same opportunities. Those who do what they can through their own conscience to follow the dictates of the natural law, keeping in mind that observing the whole of the natural law and persevering in it itself requires grace, can, through an actual grace from God, make an act of faith and thus be saved. They are saved, but note well, they are saved by faith and by charity, not through the observance of the specific dictates of their own religion. As the letter to the Hebrews puts it, quote, without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him, end quote. It's Hebrews 11.6. Within the range of possible responses to the question of the salvation of non-Christians, it seems that the Thomistic view is the most balanced. Key to this view is the fundamental distinction between the order of nature and the supernatural order a foundational distinction that St. Thomas draws in the very first question of the Summa. Ostensibly, this question concerns the nature and proper object of theology. But in this first article, we find what is arguably the most important principle of the whole work. In this article, St. Thomas inquires into whether or not revelation is necessary for salvation. St. Thomas replies that revelation is necessary because Quote, man is directed to God as to an end that surpasses the grasp of reason, end quote. What does this mean? It means that people who under ordinary circumstances are destined to die, see, for example, the rest of the animal kingdom, are destined for immortality. In other words, something natural has a potentially super, a potential supernatural end. Our twofold status of distance from God, our finitude, and also sin, means that if we are to get to God, if we are to be saved, then God must provide the means. Let us consider another point about our common human nature that is a bit more optimistic than finitude and sin. We are created in such a way that we have God as our final cause, the supernatural end of all our striving. We have God as our final end in a twofold way, as our natural end and as our supernatural end, which lies above our natural abilities. The very fact that we possess an immaterial soul, our intellect and will, demonstrates that we are oriented by nature towards a goal that is immaterial and universal, God, as he is contemplated in creation. But the contemplation of God and his creatures is not wholly satisfactory for us. For we desire not simply mediated knowledge of God, but the immediacy of union with God. We desire to love God indefectibly, and this is a wholly supernatural goal, because only the infinite God could draw the finite creature to himself. We cannot do this for ourselves, and this is why we need a savior. 
And this is why we need knowledge of him, which we call revelation. We should note further that what is at stake in this first question of the Summa is not only our salvation, but also, and preeminently, justice to God. It is necessary to have the correct idea of God because love follows knowledge, and love is our supernatural end. To have the wrong understanding of God would result in blasphemy and in idolatry. Worship matters. It matters to whom we bow and pray. There is no knowledge more important from the point of view of justice to God. What we must keep in view, then, is the fundamental distinction that obtains between the natural and the supernatural order. There is literally no proportion between the two. The finite person cannot get to God exclusively through his or her own efforts. Moreover, the order of nature as we experience it is fallen. So even if we had not sinned, and we could not, sorry, even if we had not sinned, we could not get to God of our own accord. But sin compounds the problem. We are not simply passively incapable, but are excluded from our supernatural end. Okay. Moving from our first principle of the distinction between the order of nature and the supernatural order, back to the question at hand. How is it that those outside the church can be saved? Let's turn our attention to a couple of key passages in the writings of St. Thomas. First, in the De Veritate, St. Thomas writes, quote, Granted that everyone is bound to believe something explicitly, no untenable conclusion follows even if someone is brought up in the forest or among wild beasts. The difficulty that was raised in the De Veritate that he's responding to is, well, what about somebody raised in the wild by wolves? Literally, that's the difficulty. What if you're raised by wolves? So, continuing. For it pertains to divine providence to furnish everyone with what is necessary for salvation, provided that on his part there is no hindrance. Thus, if someone so brought up followed the direction of natural reason in seeking good and avoiding evil, we must most certainly hold that God would either reveal to him through internal inspiration what had to be believed, or would send some preacher of the faith to him, as he sent Peter to Cornelius in Acts 10.20. End quote. And again, St. Thomas writes, also in the De Veritate, although it is not within our power to know matters of faith by ourselves alone, still, if we do what we can, that is, follow the guidance of natural reason, God will not withhold from us that which we need. End quote. Here, St. Thomas relates that everyone who would be saved must have explicit faith. Faith causes us to adhere to the supernatural truths revealed by God. It is itself a supernatural virtue one of the theological virtues, along with hope and charity, ordinarily given in baptism. Supernatural or infused faith is necessary in order to give assent to divine revelation, in order, in other words, for it to be efficacious, to gain our salvation. In this regard, the knowledge of God that comes through faith is truly a saving knowledge, unlike the knowledge of God that we can know exclusively through our own reasoning. The virtue of faith is infused into the soul with sanctifying grace, and is lost only by a grave sin of unbelief. Without a gift from God consisting in his enlightening and helping grace, no one can make an act of faith that is efficacious. Why? Because faith is ordered towards salvation. It takes us incrementally to heaven, and heaven is not attainable through our own efforts. Faith is, therefore, supernatural. This grace operates on both the intellect and the will. We acknowledge God's truth that he has revealed to us via our intellect, and through a separate act of the will, we decide to accept it. And this belief 
is believed wholly on the supreme authority of God, who can neither deceive nor be deceived, as the act, as the act of faith says, the prayer. Thus, faith is fundamentally an act of worship. Given this doctrine of faith, St. Thomas establishes that God, since he desires that all be saved, must provide what is necessary for salvation to all, and what is necessary is faith. Therefore, God must provide an opportunity for explicit faith for all. This can be provided for one who follows the direction of natural reason in seeking good and avoiding evil, what the church's Good Friday prayer calls sincerity of heart. This goodwill provides a foundation that God may elevate to explicit faith through grace, by an internal inspiration, or through direct contact with the gospel. St. Thomas works out the details of his view in the Prima Segunda of the Summa, question 109. For instance, he writes, we must presuppose a gratuitous gift of God who moves the soul inwardly or inspires the good wish. God directly, sorry, God directs righteous men to himself as to a special end which they seek and to which they wish to cling. According to Psalm 72, 28, it is good for me to adhere to my God. And that they are turned to God can only spring from God's having turned them. Now, to prepare oneself for grace is, as it were, to be turned to God. Just as whoever has his eyes turned away from the light of the sun prepares himself to receive the sun's light by turning his eyes towards the sun. Hence it is clear that man cannot prepare himself to receive the light of grace except by the gratuitous help of God moving him inwardly. And later, in the same volume, question 112, St. Thomas writes, Man's preparation for grace is from God as mover and from the free will as moved. Hence, the preparation may be looked at in two ways. First, as it is from free will, and thus there is no necessity that it should obtain grace, since the gift of grace exceeds every preparation of human power. But it may be considered, secondly, as it is from God the mover, and thus it has a necessity, not indeed of coercion, but of infallibility as regards what is ordained to by God, since God's intention cannot fail." Now, before we proceed to draw this analysis together, let's hammer out some of the definitions. By, by habitual grace, we mean sanctifying grace, the stable disposition of grace that is necessary for salvation and that is constituted by the life of God in the soul, normally given in baptism. By meritorious works, St. Thomas means those acts that can really get us to heaven. We merit heaven when our virtuous acts are supernatural, as it were. No amount of naturally virtuous acts can get us to heaven. If such were the case, our foundational principle concerning the, sorry, concerning the distinction between the natural and supernatural order would not hold. In order to merit, we must be in the state of grace, that is, Sanctifying grace must be operative in the soul, and each virtuous act which potentially merits reward from God is, an, is accompanied by actual graces that inspire the good act and see it to completion. With these definitions in view, we can begin to make sense of these additional passages from St. Thomas. So God is the author of grace and the principle of every meritorious act. When he prepares the soul for sanctifying grace, he sends a free gift an actual prevenient grace that inspires the soul to desire God and to cling to him. 
This is precisely what the church prays for in the second Good Friday petition. This clinging to God is an explicit act in which the soul turns to God in true supernatural charity. St. Thomas further clarifies the matter for us thus, in the Prima Secunde, question 89. When a man begins to have the use of reason, he is not entirely, this is a quote, sorry. When a man begins to have the use of reason, he is not entirely excused from the guilt of venial or mortal sin. Now the first thing that occurs to a man to think about then is to deliberate about himself. And if he then directs himself to the due end, he will by means of grace receive the remission of original sin. Whereas, if he does not then direct himself to the due end, and as far as he is capable of discretion at that particular age, he will sin mortally, for through not doing that which is in his power to do. End quote. What St. Thomas seems to be saying is that God sends each person a preparatory grace to move the soul to cling to him. At the age of reason, which traditionally has been ascribed to around seven years of age, the age of first reconciliation, an age when we are capable of distinguishing right from wrong, God offers the unbaptized the opportunity to direct himself to his supernatural end for the remission of original sin. For this reason, the Thomas commentator, Father Garagou Lagrange, notes, quote, in the actual plan of providence, every man is either in the state of grace or in the state of mortal sin. He is turned either towards God or away from him. There is no middle ground. Absolute indifference is not possible with regard to God, end quote. Everyone above the age of reason, that is, spiritual adults, are either in the state of grace or the state of mortal sin. This actual grace given at the age of reason, which comes as invitation, is a sufficient and efficacious grace. It sanctifies, because in the choice for God, one places the love of God over self-love. This grace also engenders, therefore, this grace also engenders infused charity in the soul. And it provides a foundation for greater graces and the possible full knowledge of the faith. Holding all that we have said together, we can say that it seems to be the Thomistic view that sanctifying grace, infused faith, and supernatural charity can exist in the unbaptized and those outside of the visible church. Does this invalidate the necessity of explicit faith in Christ and in the church? Does this invalidate the sacraments? After all, if explicit faith in Christ is ancillary to salvation, then we have simply reasoned ourselves back to indifferentism. What is on the table, so to speak, is implicit faith, yes, but specifically explicit, sorry, implicit faith in Christ. This is not the same as indifferentism or even the thesis of anonymous Christianity. Why? Because St. Thomas's understanding of implicit faith still relies on a minimum of explicit faith, namely in the existence and providence of God, as is underscored in Hebrews 11.6. Thus, we can think of explicit faith in multiple ways. One, belief in the whole of Christian revelation, that's explicit belief in Christ. Two, belief in a divine mediator, no matter how inchoate, some savior. Three, belief in the existence and providence of God, that God provides for our needs and gives recompense to our efforts. That's Hebrews 11.6. These last two, meteor in general, and then existence of God and providence of God, 
These last two are explicit belief in God, but implicit belief in Christ. They aim at Christ and may constitute faith in those who are not invincibly ignorant of the full revelation given to the church. St. Thomas writes that after the order of grace has been revealed, presumably historically, explicit faith in Christ is necessary for salvation. The question remains open, however, whether or not there are people who are before grace spiritually. Do you understand that? He's saying historically, but spiritually are they before grace? In other words, is the existential situation of some comparable to the historical situation of those prior to the Incarnation? Now, even having raised this point, an additional geographical question is raised. Is the existential situation uh, in this regard different in pre-Christian and post-Christian places like the West? I'm just raising that as a question. Okay, so, does St. Thomas collapse nature and grace? No. If he were positing a natural knowledge and love of God that is efficacious, that is, that results in sanctifying grace and salvation, which is precisely the thesis of anonymous Christianity, we would be reducing the two orders. Recall that we said that through a natural knowledge of God as first cause, we may reach a natural, though inefficacious, love of God. It is inefficacious since it is not supernatural and therefore fails to affect what supernatural faith does, salvation. Natural knowledge and love cannot move the will to conform itself to God in the moral life. It doesn't inspire the person with a desire to avoid sin. But it does create an openness to God in which a person can begin to take delight in God's beauty and goodness. As should be evident, far from collapsing the natural and the supernatural order, St. Thomas demonstrates that if there is supernatural knowledge and love of God in the souls of the unbaptized, then it is infused by God. Implicit faith in Christ, when wed to explicit faith in God and his providence, really may constitute the life of grace, which will be confirmed in glory, provided that the person does not fall into mortal sin. Though this is very hopeful, the question remains, what if the unbaptized do in fact fall into mortal sin? This certainly seems likely for many, considering that many of the faithful likewise fall, and this with greater knowledge of the precepts of faith and full access to the sacraments. Now, we know that each and every mortal sin can be avoided by every person in the state of grace. But the question is, must God give additional graces of repentance? Obviously not, since God cannot be bound by any external necessity. Even for the faithful, the grace of repentance is not a sure thing which is why the church is always cautioned against the sin of presumption. For the Catholic, however, there is always the possibility of a sacramental confession. For those outside the church, there would have to be an additional actual grace given to move the soul of the person to make a perfect act of contrition. So overall, we might describe the approach taken to the salvation of non-believers in St. Thomas as neither inappropriately optimistic nor excessively alarmist but rather as cautiously hopeful. We began this lecture with a simple question. For what shall we hope? For ourselves? For those whom we know and love? Indeed, for all people. 
What I hope has been made clear from this presentation is that to take, is that to take our answer from the lips of St. Paul, God does not command the impossible. The God who has revealed that without faith, it is impossible to please him, is the same God who reveals to St. Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. In his glorious and infinite justice, our Lord commands faith, and in his extravagant and infinite mercy, he provides sufficient grace for each and every one of us to be saved. Thank you.